Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, you're listening to episode 21 of Kicking the Karaoke. This is the intersectional feminist podcast series. This is the place where we, as two really privileged white girls in society, try and use a little bit of that privilege and provide a platform to stories and narratives that can sometimes be forgotten. We like to cover the big topics and unpack how intersecting identities as individuals can be affected by society and its norms. So, last month we talked about feminism as 2018 marks 100 years since some women were given the right to vote. Some revelations from that episode include the fact that, yes, the suffragettes did fight for the right to vote, but they wanted it so that they could have their say and a piece of the colonial pie. That's not fair or cute. And also that Kurdish women are total badasses and that you should 100% go back and listen to that episode. Just a quick shout out to Pira Berger on Twitter. And they raised a really interesting point. They said that the episode, they loved it, but it didn't deal with the anti-trans movement and radical feminism and the problems behind that. So thank you so much for pointing that out, taking the time to listen and tell us what you thought. We appreciate it and we've got something in the pipeline that I think you'll like. So please, if you think that we should cover something, definitely let us know as we'll research it and find out the best way that we can cover it. You can do this a few ways. You can tweet us at Kikariaki or you can drop us an email, kickingthekariaki at gmail.com. Amazing. So this month's episode, we're talking about incarceration and that means being imprisoned. So the injustices and inequalities that are woven into the UK judicial system are rarely acknowledged. So this month we wanted to try and shed a little bit of light on that. Put some context around it. The prison system in the US is actually fucked. Exactly. So um, so when you think about the prison system in the US, it's basically an extension of slavery in that when slavery was abolished, they decided that, OK, cool, yeah, slavery is abolished, but then they made it really easy to imprison black people. And so then that legacy is carried on. Uh, now to the 21st century and you can still see that there is a disproportionately high number of people of colour in the prison system and so then within these massive multiplex prisons in the states there's essentially slave labour so it's essentially another facet or another way of enslaving mainly people of colour you know they make them make items of clothing kitchen utensils and don't pay them for it so that's why it's fucked and is basically an extension of slavery and that is why it can be difficult to understand the extent of the problem in the UK and why you might think that there isn't a problem with our prison systems here, or that it could even be similar. So the British prison population has more than doubled in 20 years. We have the highest rate of imprisonment in Western Europe, and a disproportionately high number of those people are people of colour. We all know that prisons are more like cages rather than places of rehabilitation, and they're also facing alarming budget cuts, which leads to severe understaffing and privatisation. Right, and so here's a disturbing thought. When you think about privatization that there is someone out there who is most likely a man and who is you know let's face it most likely white 
who is lining their pockets with the prison system that there is genuinely someone out there who has a vested interest in keeping our prisons full. And it doesn't just stop at prisons. What about immigration detention centres, which by their very nature function like prisons? Yarlswood is an example of that and has been described as a critical problem for women of colour. And then what about the forgotten women who die at the hands of the state, like Sarah Reid, a woman who quite simply should have never been in Holloway Prison? What can we learn from her story? Let's find out. My name is Marilyn Reid. I'm the mother of Sarah Reid. Since her death, I found that I've had to go from being a mother, grandmother, to being a campaigner in regards to the things that led up to her dying and campaigning now for vulnerable women, particularly young vulnerable women and men that suffer from mental illnesses. Can you take us back to the beginning of Sarah's story, if that's all right, to kind of explain to us and also our listeners about Sarah's journey? Yeah. Well, Sarah was basically a normal young child. She grew up to be a normal teenager. She even went on in her early years to qualify in fashion because she had a love of Okachore fashion. On a whole, she was a very loving, caring, considerate young woman. I mean, I'll give you an example. Sarah would actually go to the great-grandparents a couple of times a week and do things like shopping, cleaning... And she'd not say anything to anyone, but this, this was Sarah's character, her heart, her, her nature. She was very popular. I can say she was um, an amazing young woman, very considerate, and I think partly as well because of her younger sister being born with disabilities. Basically, what happened to Sarah was she had an experience when she had her second child. And building up to that experience, the, the child when she was born, showed clearly that it had disabilities. But these disabilities were not picked up by the local health authority. And there was a couple of occasions where the child would actually stop breathing and Sarah would have it rushed to the local hospital. And every time she'd be sent home being told, oh, it's got a cold. There was an occasion where she broke down one morning, this is after the fourth visit, being sent back home with the child, and, you know, she was crying. And she would tell people, like, there's something wrong with my baby, I'm being ignored. But anyway, it took for her to be distressed one day in her, in her apartment, and a neighbour heard her distress, came to see her, and called the police and an ambulance because the child was obviously in crisis. And what happened was, because she was so distraught and she felt, well, being ignored, it took, basically, for police officers and an ambulance to take the two children to the local hospital to identify, finally, this is now the fifth time this child's been taken to this same hospital, that yeah, there was something seriously wrong and the child required an operation immediately. So straight away, Sarah was thrown into this and that, that to me, was the beginning of serious changes for Sarah because she felt she, she had been ignored. 
by everyone that should have listened. And her and the father believed that by this child having this operation, it was going to live. But things progressed and I think within six weeks of the diagnosis, the child passed away and she never recovered, nor did the father and they, they separated over what happened with this baby. But what I saw happen to my daughter was that she developed a mistrust of the local health authorities. On the passing of the child, her and the father were given the deceased baby on the very bedding that it died on to transport from North London to Woolwich Undertakers in a civilian car. And I can remember looking at the father and Sarah and seeing that something had been crushed in them after that incident. But anyway, after that, Sarah tried to get answers from the social workers, a GP, the hospitals that had her child's care, including the hospice. And what she experienced and what we all saw, the whole family felt that instead of her being treated as a grieving mother and someone coming forward and saying a mistake has been made here and we apologise. No one actually said to her, we are sorry. And what happened was, which constantly I've seen happening, is she and the father began being treated as if they were perpetrators, as if they'd done something wrong. Because what I find that with the, the establishment, when an error is made by staff, it's almost as if they close ranks and make demonise you. And that's basically what happened to Sarah. But in the midst of all of that, she started to complain of having images at night when she tried to sleep of the deceased child. And um, the GP, who no known her since she was a small child, said she's grieving and um, we want her to be looked at by the South East Morsley she explained to us that they'll come in, counsel Sarah and give her um, medication if she needs it because by now she, she, she wasn't able to sleep. The father also went into a crisis what his family did was they sent him abroad for a year because um, he couldn't cope neither with with us, we entrusted Sarah's care with the well, well, with the local health teams. When the counsellors would come in, Sarah wouldn't speak to them. As I said, we work as a family very closely, and everyone supports everyone. And even at her grandparents' home, she wouldn't engage with the counsellors. She wouldn't touch medication or anything. And so, I'd say. That was the beginning of her end because after that she started to spiral looking back I'd say she looked to me like she was trying to cope with the loss and the way she was treated her as a young family yeah I'd just say like the agencies I'd just say shame on them that they didn't really help this young family 
and caused my daughter to become later on diagnosed a couple years down the line as a schizophrenic and she had no previous history of anything like that. She was a functioning young woman and you know after that experience it's, it's almost as if she tried to keep her head above and function because she still had her living daughter but she I believe she also struggled with the loss of her baby and the failings of the state because she always said I don't trust any of these people so that was pretty much Sarah could you tell us um why Sarah was in Holloway prison she ended up in Holloway prison because there was an incident where she was a patient in Camberwell Hospital, Morsley. She was on a mixed ward and, in her words, she was on her meds, that means she'd been medicated for the evening, and um, an elderly white male came to take sexual advantage of her. And in order to prevent him from violating her, she lashed out and, well, caused blood to be drawn. Police were called to the ward by the Morsley staff and because she wasn't bleeding and he was bleeding, she was taken to Brixton Police Station and charged for causing grievous bodily harm. I actually reported her missing as well that night and it was really odd because she normally calls me every day wherever she is, wherever she'd be you know, even if I was on holiday I'd get my call. So that particular evening I had rung as well, my local police, because her phone wasn't she wasn't answering her mobile phone and when I rung the hospital where I believe she was they said oh they had no idea what happened to her so anyway when I got to Brixton they acknowledged that they had her in the cells and um, I also called for a solicitor to support her and because they wouldn't allow me to see her they wouldn't allow me to speak to her but one but one thing was asked of me by my local police when I went in I was asked by a couple of the officers, why did you report her missing? And I thought that was really odd because they wouldn't give me the location of where she was. They, um, Even when I got to Lewisham, they were still a bit skatey and saying, oh, well, even if you do go to Brixton where she is being held, you won't be able to see her. But that's how Sarah ended up in Holloway. So it was an ongoing case where this other patient had tried to sexually assault her. She went to court. She had several earrings. But this one particular morning in October 2015, she went to the earring to find out if the judge was going to start trial or throw it out. And, and Judge Davis requested that Sarah go to Holloway for psychiatrist reports even though Sarah by then had had at least 10, 11 years mental health history with the local health authority to see if she was fit to plea against this assault that took place in Morsley. 
So prior to Holloway, there was an incident at Uniqlo, which I guess would have contributed to her mental health issues. Well, yeah, because she was battered. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? And she was accused of something. She was just walking around in the store and because of her appearance, which everyone can see on the video, she's quite thin. She suffered from um, bulimia and that was something that she developed after losing the baby. She was accused of shoplifting. She wasn't seen shoplifting she was accused and asked to go into the back of the store she said when the officers came in because there was two you only see one on camera but there was two she said the first thing she did was you see she just sat there she's not shouting she's not swearing she just sat there with her hat on she opened her bag to say have a look i've not done anything and she didn't get any further than you can actually see on the video and then she had that officer, as you know, that went on to grab her by her hair, dragged her off of the where she was seated and, um, yeah, physically injured her. And it did affect her because you, she said, you can't see it on the, on the video but properly, but she said he, was, he had his knee in my back and in my throat. And she said, I said to him, you're going to kill me. Um, by accident, can you get off of me? And she, she, it left her feeling, um, yeah, traumatised on top of the already trauma that she was walking around with. Would you think that that would have then had an impact on her experience in Holloway Prison? You know, like I can imagine that that would have then led to quite a lot of trust issues with senior white men in the police force? Oh, definitely. In some of Sarah's journals, while in Holloway, there are there are things written about what she experienced in Holloway throughout that time being on remand, waiting for these alleged doctor's reports. And also, we since her death, with me doing the publicity and campaigning, women have approached me that were on her wing and on her floor and they've given me different version of events of what Sarah experienced in Holloway. So what is your account of what happened to Sarah at Holloway? We were given the um, official story, which was she was found hanging. And then whoever made the phone call, being the governor, after 30 minutes must have realised that you can't hang in a, in a non-self-harm cell where you can't tear the bed in. And then the call came through again to me directly that, oh, actually, she was found laid on her bed with torn sheets and wrapped sheets around her head, about four sheets. That's the version that we were given. Do you believe that? What do you think? We've got medical people in the families. I've got friends that I've known for over 30 years that have been the old matrons and... Even when they heard it, they said, <laughs> everyone knows if you tie anything around your throat, if you become unconscious and stop breathing, whatever you've tied automatically becomes loose. And Sarah died in a, a cell where you can't rip the sheets. 
in a non it, you cannot harm yourself it's a specialist cell we actually went and had a look at it because by then according to them she was seen as in crisis waiting to be transferred to hospital around about the 4th of January because I saw her on the 2nd but they they were struggling for a bed so do you think do you think someone's responsible for this All I can say is the facts, the evidence, right. the statements that have come forward speak for themselves. And if everything was done in sincerity and honesty, even how Sarah allegedly died, if it was if it was thoroughly investigated, I think even the written report would would cause the most basic person to wonder how is this possible yeah so do you think then Sarah's you know intersecting identities you know she's a woman she's a woman of colour has mental health issues do you think that those all worked against her in this story do you think that her story might have been different had this maybe been a white woman in that situation well I'd like to think not because she was born here I, I was born here we're British, yeah. as British can be. be whether, whether we're not the Caucasian British, we are British. And her father is a, a undiluted, full Yorkshire man. And she was always taught, you know, that everyone has a level ground to fairness. And I'd like to believe that what Sarah experienced had nothing to do with her colour. I, like other people that know Sarah and knew what had happened to Sarah... We feel that what happened to Sarah in Holloway is connected with previous experiences because overnight, after the encounter with the officer, her medical records changed. She went from being a schizophrenic to a person with um, personality disorder, yet she'd been known as someone with schizophrenia for over five years after the death of her child. And at one stage, uh, the consultant even said to me, I think she's playing up. And this is a consultant that had known of, of her condition for quite a few years and acknowledged that we believe it's because of what happened to her child while she's like this. But that was changed overnight. And Sarah, as much as she had issues, she was meticulous at keeping records, journals, paperwork mm. and after she passed away um her partner at the time she must have knew something was going to happen presented all of these documents some of them all over 10 years old and they're all these documents they show that stuff that's changed could you describe what it's like being a mother knowing that your daughter is somewhere where they shouldn't be or that isn't good for them because you saw her a few days before, right? Yeah, I, well, at yeah. the time, I was very anxious mm. for her because she looked in distress. And my last words to her was, just hang in there. Because she, we were in the process of changing a solicitor that was acting for her because the solicitor had become hostile towards me. You know, like I tried to, I, I approached them and, and said to them, can you give the judge a letter for me? And they were like, no. And Sarah 
she stopped engaging with them because one of the things that happened to Sarah when she went into Holloway, medication that she'd been on for years to keep her stable, antipsychotics, they were taken away. And the, the version of events was they thought she'd have an heart attack. Her potassium levels would drop. So I felt distressed for her because we got letters, me and the partner and, and phone calls, you know, told them to give me my tablets. And even when I went to see her on the 2nd of January... She said, they won't even give me my sleeping tablets. And everybody knows if someone has been taking medication, especially um, like the antipsychotic tablets for a number of weeks or months or years, if you don't need it, once you've taken it, it's very, very unlikely that you're going to function without it. So it distressed me to see that. And it also distressed me to see that people in, in positions of responsibility and trust whatever their reason fail and ignore I sometimes question if what happened to Sarah was random because she loved her daughter and when she was out and about and available she always made time for her baby and so I know the love that she had would have never allowed her to have taken her actual life no matter what anyone says so just lastly what can we do to be allies to the movement the campaign well basically you can apart from we say say her name sarah reed you can put this out there that it'll probably touch others because i can't bring my daughter back yeah and her legacy, I'd like it to be that other females, particularly young women, and some of these young women, they don't ask to be the way they are. I'd like that there'd be a change in the law, that young women, particularly young women, would be assessed fairly and treated fairly because women, we're the caregivers, and if we break... It's taken a lot to break us. Mm. So I know we have women's rights, women's movements, but there's a body of women under the age of 35 that are, I think they've been overlooked in the UK. They're left to think like, you're young, you're cute, get on with it. But I would like to believe that things would change, especially where children and babies and things are concerned because when a woman loses a baby it normally impacts them so I'd like to see a change on that level that prison would never be seen as a place for anyone for medical assessments um, psychiatrist reports a holding place we're meant to be in the 21st century for God's sake to this very day no one has been able to explain to me how it's right that my daughter got taken from her flat with her care team around her in the community and placed in Holloway for psychiatrist reports and left waiting, waiting. And even when she died, it, it appeared that she only had one medical report done because she wouldn't engage with the doctors. If she had not died, would she still be there today? 
waiting for these reports because no one told her when she'd be leaving or anything. So I don't think that's right. I'd like that that to be a change. Absolutely. And that's what I'm campaigning for because prisons aren't for... They're not for medical things. They're for criminals. That was Marilyn Reed talking to us about her daughter Sarah's life at the hands of the state. It's really powerful to hear her story. If you can, go and find out more and see how you can support the campaign. And if you only have two, three minutes, watch that video of that police officer with Sarah. Up next is someone who has a first-hand account of what it's like to be in an immigration detention centre. Hi, my name's Yasmin. I'm 35 years old. I'm currently incarcerated in Yarlswood, where I have been for over five months now. We reached out to you through something called Detained Voices. Now, can you chat to us uh, maybe a little bit about what Detained Voices is or what your relationship with Detained Voices is? For me, it's the, I find it therapeutic. It's like a journal that I write sometimes. It's just an outlet, really. You don't. It's weird being in a detention like a lot of people, they don't know who they can talk to. Like, there's not really many people you can talk to. You, you're always afraid that it's going to affect your case and they're not independent. So for me, it's just like an outlet where I can just say what I want. I vent a lot on there. Can you tell us a little bit about your story and your journey so far? I don't really feel that I represent migrants like in a positive way. But to be fair, I don't really view myself as, as a migrant. Technically, I am, yeah. But I don't speak any other languages. I've been here since I was a child. I've spent 24 years here. My values, my everything, my, my character is formed in Britain. Like, I don't really know where I would fit in anywhere else. There was a civil war in my country when I was young. And uh, my dad, who already lived in Britain, uh, he came and got me. And this is where I've been ever since. And which country was that? Algeria. And so, and so you've been in you've been in Britain ever since then. Yeah, ninety four. Wow. And so, how have you ended up in Yarlswood? I thought I was documented. I didn't know that I was undocumented. Yeah. So at um, fifteen, just before you leave school, you get your national insurance number. Mm. And then I've had jobs, um, just basically existing normally. And then I got into a little bit of trouble and um, it didn't even come up then. It wasn't until, I think, 2014, was it, where my uh, employers at the time, they were doing some checks. Mm. And my um, employer said they can't find anything for me. So I tried to get a passport and that's when I, I found out that I was undocumented. Wow. And what was that, that like, finding out that you were undocumented? I can't really explain to you the feeling. It's so, it's very, very strange. I felt a little bit angry in a way, but, like, I didn't know the severity of it right away, you know. Like, I thought it was just something that I could just fix. And then like, as time started progressing and I had to stop college, I had to stop working, I had to give up my house. It just became more and more desperate and reality started to set in. To be honest with you, it was like a whole whirlwind. I, personally, I didn't deal with it very well. I just couldn't understand. I was angry, like, how could I be here all this time? Mm -hmm. and it's not like I'm living in hiding or anything. I'm just living my life normally. 
and it will only get flagged up like then, you know, like 20 years later, it was weird. It was like my identity, like I, I got confused. Like I don't, I didn't know who I was for a bit. I don't belong here. I definitely know I don't belong in Algeria. I felt removed already before, you know, they tried to physically remove me. I couldn't participate in society like, in any positive way. For me, like it affected me in a bad way. I had very bad depression. I just started doing stupid things. Like I just I did not deal with it very well at all in the beginning. I can't even fathom or imagine what that must feel like. At risk of sounding dramatic, but I mean, this is a dramatic situation. Literally, your whole life as you know it just fall through your fingers. Of course. The rug being pulled from under your feet and you, you don't stop falling into this endless administrative nightmare that you can't wake up from. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. Dealing with the Home Office is so tedious, it's bureaucratic to the point of like you just want to shoot yourself in the head. Like, and that's not being dramatic. Like five weeks ago, they asked me to go up there to sign some document to say that they can look at my medical records. And then just yesterday, they called me up again to do it again. And I, and I was thinking, they said, oh, uh, we think you've already signed this, but we, we can, we, we're not sure. And I thought, well, if you needed it five weeks ago, bear in mind, I'm detained, like my liberty is taken, and it's took you five weeks to realise that you've misplaced it. What part of my case has, has been delayed by five weeks because you've misplaced a piece of paper? I've been here five months now. Bear in mind, I've got no travel documents. My case is deemed very complex, even by the Home Office. Like, there's no way that I can be removed in any reasonable time. Like, why not just let me out? This is a removal centre. You're supposed to stay here before you get removed. But I'm not in danger of being removed anytime soon. Mm. The process is heartless. It's incompetent to the point of being cruel. Could you tell us about what is the process of ending up in Yarlswood? What People everything? end up here in many different ways, you know, like um, you have obviously you have offenders who come from prison. You have people who go to report. They're already under some sort of immigration control and they are complying. You know, they're not absconding or anything, but they're going to centres where, where they're supposed to sign on, like either police stations or home office buildings. And they get detained from there a lot of the time. A lot of people as well, like I've met holiday makers, like this one couple, they had um, a visitor's visa. They were staying in a hotel. They came to Britain and after one week, immigration came to the hotel and took them from there and kept them here for two months. And then I think there's a, there's a I mean, this is a, a centre for women, right? There's only two centres for women. There's one here in Bedford and then there's one in Scotland. Like for me, I'm from Manchester, North Manchester, Rochdale, yeah? It's hard for my friends and that to get down here. It's very far. Yeah, a lot of people are removed like from their support networks and things. Detention is really weird. It isolates you and you don't know when that isolation will come to an end. And you don't know to what end it will come at where you can be here. I mean, there's a girl that's been here 10 months. There was a girl that was here 14 months, but she got released. 
what happened to you to end up in Yarswood? Because I, f- I feel like Yarswood and immigration detention centres should almost be the last resort. That's it. It's supposed to be a removal centre. You don't go before a judge before your liberty is taken, right? You just, it's just a caseworker somewhere that decides, that, who's never met you, by the way. Like, even going through the process, right? so they're not even here illegally. When you have an application, like you're, you're not illegal, but you can still be detained. There's people here who are asylum seekers, who have been trafficked, who were torture victims. There's people here who are transgender and they don't give them the hormones here. And by the homelessness' own guidelines, yeah, the transgender people should not be detained. Why but is that? Basically, they can't really cater for them. They can't meet basic needs for them, right? My best friend in here is transgender. And that's what makes me so angry as well, like seeing her not getting her hormones, breaking out in spots, feeling horrible, feeling dirty all the time. They're classed as vulnerable. The vulnerable while detained, yeah? So they're not supposed to be detained. But in my time here, it's one of three that has been detained here. Can you describe what Yarlswood is like? It looks a bit like a hospital, like, you know, the corridors and things. There's loads of stupid artwork all around, like, really patronising. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Amazing. Like, I'm going crazy in here. Mm. I, I've been here five months now. There's nothing here to engage me. I hate the very fibre of the building. It just bores me so much. I'm so, like, fed up with it. Every morning, I, I, it takes me, like, an hour to get my head straight to come out of my room. To keep people here for an indefinite amount of time, there's not enough things to keep you, like, engaged. 
the atmosphere in here right now, like there's a lot of new people. So like I'm always hearing people crying on the phone, people confused, they don't know how to send a fax, they're trying to get a lawyer, you know, everybody's stressed out. Like it's tense for me as well when there's new people, you never know how they'll react to you because it's obviously it's a very stressful situation to be in. So like everything is heightened. I feel angry and frustrated for you when you think about that you were brought here as a child so that you had no control over it and you were being taken from what sounds like a war zone. Yeah, it was. I mean, I feel like you're, you're not responsible for this. The Home Office, in refusing my application, they said I don't have the right to choose where to have a private life. But obviously, I didn't choose anything at 11. Like, with the Windrush generation, right... So now at least like people can see what the Home Office do. This is not an accident. This is what they've been doing. This is this is how they operate. This is the the, the modus operandi. This is what they do. But you've got all these people who came here on 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 the Windrush, and they've been here like since seven, ten, eleven. Basically, there's no difference between them and a lot of people, and that they're just that they're undocumented. The Home Office just target anybody like that. It doesn't matter how long you've been here. It doesn't matter like, if you, all your family is here. You're just a number to them, and they have to try to abide by like unrealistic immigration targets. At least the one good thing about all this is I hope people see like how the Home Office are operating. They want to send me to a country where I don't even speak the language. Yeah, like I would get in trouble in a country like that. Since I don't even go on Google anymore to look it up because it just terrifies me. Like, I grew up in a very tolerant society and I don't see Algeria as being like that. I don't feel like I could exist as myself there. It's like, I wasn't born here, but I was made here. I'm like, literally afraid. I read on on the news that somebody was imprisoned for a Facebook comment criticising the the government. I'm opinionated anyway, so I would get in in trouble in a place like that. And like homosexuality is illegal there. That's terrifying. So is there a real possibility that you could be sent to Algeria? Of course. If my all my appeals fail and they keep refusing everything, which is just what they do, yeah, the whole, they never accept anything. Any positive decision that anybody's got is always through appeals, first tier tribunal, upper tier tribunal, high court. It's always appeals. Like the Home Office, they never grant anybody anything. I've never heard of them accepting somebody's asylum claim first time or accepting that somebody's being trafficked or that they're a torture victim. Like. They put you through so much, like, to prove your story, yeah. And, like, I was talking with uh, my friend the other day, and she's like, and I was talking about all the documents that I need and things, yeah. And uh, she's like, well, you're in there, like, shortly. Why can't they let you out so you can fight your case? And so basically what they, they do is, like, they chop your legs off and put you in a marathon, put you at a real disadvantage. Like, I don't think people can fight their cases fairly from in here. I really don't. When people are being sent back to their... Uh, when flight... people are being forcibly removed, or just removed. Or yeah. 
How does that feel in the centre? Do people know that that's going to happen? How do they feel when they know about the flight? Uh, oh, a couple of weeks ago, there was a charter flight, yeah. And uh, this girl was forcibly removed, right? And they, all the officers were around her. One of them was like videotaping it. She was handcuffed, but I think it was like zip ties. And it looked awful, like her hands were unnaturally high behind her back, all twisted up and stuff. It got really tense. I thought it was going to kick off. Like it played on my mind for a week. Like I was, I became really withdrawn. I wouldn't speak to any officers. It's, it's weird. It felt like a betrayal because like, I don't know, it's like a Stockholm syndrome. Like they are your captives, but can't help but like make friends with them, especially like, especially if you're like me, because I mean, there's a lot of people here from all different backgrounds and that, and like people that I have banter with and things like that and can communicate with better are like British, yeah? So I find that I like, talk with the officers more and also because they're like the only constant once you've been here so long and there's like a turnover of people like you don't really want to get close to people because you know they're going to leave it becomes very lonely so when I saw certain officers do that I felt like so betrayed I was like hurt it was really weird and like I, I, I cried for like days I was having dreams about it I felt awful for the girl like I didn't know what had happened to her like it, it was one of the horriblest times. It's interesting that you chat about your relationship with the officers because there's been quite a lot of controversy around the officers and how they've been treating people. You know, there's been reports of um, of abuse, sexual abuse, of, um, you know, bullying. Have you witnessed or experienced any of that? Personally, no. However, what I see, I see things like, like the healthcare here is awful. I don't go there. I'm traumatised from it. I don't go there at all. I could be like having a brain hemorrhage. I wouldn't go there. This one girl, she was a Chinese girl. She was a, she was a victim of trafficking and modern day slavery and she'd been in here seven months before they finally let her out. She was so stressed out. She was having like hives Inside her eyelids, she was that stressed out. I saw her so many times go to healthcare, struggle to explain things. She'd come with like a note from the welfare office or what somebody else had written for her and try to explain. And all they did is like shout at her in English more. They shout louder, like, like she's going to understand because she's shouting louder, you know. And then it wasn't until she tried to slash her wrist one day that... And I had a word with an officer who's not even part of healthcare. And that's when I found out they have a translator service, like, on the phone. So for seven months she'd been here, not once did they offer to lift the phone up and call somebody who, who speaks Mandarin to translate for her. So all that frustration, all that stress was just unnecessary. It was just insensitive. And, like, that really touched me. Yeah, language barriers... Uh, I think that some officers, they get spoken to in so many dialects and so many accents and things that they just become desensitised and don't see a person anymore. They just see a problem that they don't understand. Could you tell us about the, the hunger strikes? The hunger strikes were just started because we were so frustrated. felt like that there was nothing we could do to fight back. That's how the system makes you feel 
that you don't have a voice, that you don't get a say in how you're treated, like, you know, like you're an outsider and we deal with you how BC fit. Like, it was really grated on me, like, that feeling of powerless. Like, just, you know, just, like, just things happening to me and I had no control over it. So I just got, I just got, like, really stressed out and couldn't see it any other way and, like, fighting back. It was only meant to be a three-day one anyway. But then the Home Office refused to even acknowledge it. So that's why then after that, we did like a month long, it was like a month long hunger strike. They threatened us as well with accelerated cases. In my case, I wish they'd have followed through with that, to be honest with you, because five months later, and I'm basically still where I was five months ago. The hunger strike was, it was good. It was good because like, I felt like they had to work, like they had to earn their money created a lot more paperwork for them to do. Mm-hmm. Just felt like it disrupted the, disrupted them a little bit. Yeah. But I wish that they could identify with us a bit more, like see us as people a bit more. Mm. Not as just numbers or problems or yeah. Right, but, so you feel completely like dehumanized. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's exactly how I feel. Mm. And I, I feel that I, I feel institutionalized right now. I've been here so long. It's like I feel like I'm a totally different person. I feel completely different. Like I don't feel like me anymore. Is, I don't see my friends. I haven't it, seen my dad for a long time. Mm. I can't think too much about the outside world. Yeah. Because. I just get very sad that I'm not in it. Well, generally, what is the outcome of people in detention centres and in Yarlswood? Are most people... Released. So they're released back into the UK? Yeah. The girl who was here for 14 months, she was released. A girl who was here for 12 months, she was released. A girl was here for seven months, she was released. So what's the point in holding you anyway? Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Like I said, it is called an immigration removal centre, like yeah. removal centre, not a detain you while I try to remove you centre. Yeah. And so you're, it's not a prison. Well, I guess technically it's not a prison. Well, it is a prison. Of course it's a prison. There's lockdowns. My liberty is taken. I can't go out. Right. Like, it doesn't matter if you have a gym and a library. Prison have those. Prisons right. have those, yeah. So it doesn't matter if I'm not locked in my room because I'm locked in this godforsaken place that I cannot get out from. So I'm completely imprisoned. You don't have your liberty. Yeah, that's the number one thing that you don't have in prison, right? And I don't have my liberty here. So I am in prison. I wish I was in a prison because then I'd have a release date. I'd know when when this hell would come to an end. Yeah, th- th- this is worse than a prison. This is like a gulag because you don't know when you're getting out. And so, what what can we do to be to be allies to people and women in detention centres and to people like you? I think like the first step is to just like raise awareness. I think I really feel that there should be like an independent governing body that governs the Home Office because. They're a law unto themselves, and 
they are an organisation that touch a lot of people's lives. Like the Prime Minister said, that is true. So they need to be careful how they touch those lives. Like for example, if you have a hearing, they should turn up with all the paperwork. They should follow all the judge's directions. I had a hearing recently, but the Home Office didn't do that. So who holds them to account? No one. You can just reset the date for two months later. I'm still in detention. Two months later, we'll go to court again, where the judge just basically wants to make sure that they're doing their job properly. It's not even a proper hearing. It's just for them, for the judge to see that the Home Office are prepared. By then, I've been in detention seven months and they're not even prepared to bring a case against me. Yeah, I'm still detained. How they treat in the Windrush generation is how they treat everyone, regardless how long you've been here, how old you are, what family you have here. They don't care. It's really heartless. It's a heartless organisation. And for the Prime Minister to say, oh, they touch many people's lives, really they should... They should be more responsible. Is there anything that you wanted to say? Usually we ask like, how our guests can support you, people who listen to the episodes, um, how they can support. Is there anything that you'd like to tell them to do? Yeah, check out the change voices and you get some ideas from there. Also, like lobby your MPs. That's, a, that's the most powerful one. It's like if we need a change in policy and only MPs can do that something will get done eventually, hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, don't just read like one source of news and, you know, get get a well-rounded view of what's going on. It's true, what I, I've said this before, yeah. Today, they're detaining me indefinitely for an administrative reason. Tomorrow, who's to say, because it's not such a far step, right? to detain somebody, like the most vulnerable people in, in society, and then, you know, they're going to, what next, like just detain anybody who votes Labour or anybody who voted Remain, or it's not a far step for something like that to happen. Like, if somebody in society can have their liberty taken unfairly, then we're all in danger. Mm. So I think that that's what like, people need to realise and just what, do whatever is necessary to affect a change in policy, basically just to make our society more just, socially yeah. just. Up next, we are talking to Paula. So my name's Paula. I think primarily I'm a woman. I'm a mum and a grandma, five kids and four grandchildren. I'm white, white Irish, 57 years old, and I have been in, in prison, so I identify as a person with lived expertise and experience of the criminal justice system. Having uh, been to prison, I got an eight-year sentence in 2004. I've been working in user involvement since my release from prison in 2008, and I am really passionate about making sure or ensuring and supporting the community of people who have experience of criminal justice to organise themselves and to play a meaningful role in the political debates about imprisonment, but also more widely around social justice issues and political, economic and social frameworks. If you're comfortable with it, are you able to tell yeah. us why you had an eight-year sentence? So I was I was using drugs and I was caught up in the distribution of cocaine. 
I've been using drugs, to be quite honest, since my early 20s, you know, smoking weed recreationally, using ecstasy, acid, going to festivals. I suppose, you know, one of those proper middle-class girls that just go off to festivals at Glastonbury and hippies. And then it's sort of escalated in terms of you end up getting drawn into the supply of drugs because it was a way of maintaining your own drug use without really impacting on your economic way of life. It wasn't really about profit. It was more about maintaining a level of usage that I'd become accustomed to. And if anybody's listening who's had a heavy habit around cocaine, then know that that escalates and escalates and escalates. And to the point where, in many ways, it was very much out of control. And when I got arrested with a kilo of cocaine, I was actually, in some ways, weirdly quite relieved. Well, that you were caught? Not that I was caught and the consequences of it, but there's a point when you lose sight of what the exit strategy from that way of life that you've constructed is. I didn't know how to leave it. I knew I wanted to. I knew I wanted to stop it, but I suppose addiction takes over and you end up in an ever-spiralling despair. And so in many ways, I remember the feeling when the police battered down the door and they were arresting me and I knew it was over. And although there was a terrible shock, there was also a sense of relief. Sometimes you need a crisis to move you and propel you forward. Later on in my reflections of what's gone on, I've always I've thought about how sometimes when we're in very difficult situations, we need a crisis to propel us with momentum to go forward or to, to leave it. It needs something drastic. Change is often linked to adversity. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience of incarceration? Oh, God. You know, I'm sure it's well-intentioned and there are kind people who work in the prison system and some of those kind people, you know, were beacons of light in the moments of despair and darkness. But in general, horrendous, because I'm a mother of five children. So imagine people put handcuffs on you and take you away, forcibly separate you from your children. I've never even spent a day apart from my kids when I went to prison. And, you know, people go, oh, you know, you should have thought that when you were doing drugs, but you just don't. In many ways, using drugs was so normal in my life. I had no comprehension. It was even illegal. That's how deeply involved I was in it. I thought people actually came to your house for a cup of tea and a line of Coke. I was in a parallel life where in my lifestyle, you know, my friends did snort Coke and we did have cups of tea. And I think I lost sense of the illegality of it. And I definitely lost sense of how destructive it was for me because everybody around you colludes with the illusion that it's fine. Can you give us a sense of what it was like to be in prison? Please don't ever believe prison's about rehabilitation. People delude themselves in the community, as I've come to understand now, you know, that we send people to prison, A, as punishment, but also, you know, to support them to reform and rehabilitate and be better people. Well, that's a fallacy. Prison is ultimately about punishment. It's about taking you away from your community and placing you in an unwelcoming frightening environment with lots of other people who are also coming from very damaged, you know, I would say my life was very damaged. And then you're suddenly placing people who are vulnerable and damaged and frightened all together with limited staffing, yeah, that is primarily around 
punishment. And then punishment's quite symbolic, isn't it? Because I'm no longer Paula Harriet when I go to prison on MM4865. You know, that's quite symbolic, isn't it? You, you don't even have a name. Punishment works at all sorts of levels, doesn't it? It's not just mm-hmm. about being brutalised physically. It's the emotional and coercive nature of systemic punishment that affects people. I don't think it's healthy about, you know, do that sort of stuff to people. I think it stems from a belief that we make rational decisions about crime and therefore, you know, if you're sent off to reflect, you know, like send off the kids to the you know, upstairs room and think about what's done. Well, if you didn't know what you were doing was wrong, if you didn't have a moral and ethical framework by which to reflect on what your behaviour is or isn't, you just sit there lost, don't you? And where are the programmes that support that in prison, that process of reflection? They're very few and far between. I was fortunate, you know, did access some support from the chaplaincy. was never a particularly religious person, but the chaplaincy, whichever religious denomination they were from, you know, whether they were Pentecostals or Salvation Army or Anglican or Catholic, you know, I went to all of them because they were kind and thoughtful and reflective and non-judgmental and held you in a space of mental and emotional safety for those, for those moments of conversation. When we see prison on TV, it, it's like a very plain place, like plain coloured walls, there are lots of bars. So, I mean, the psychology of the building is brutalist, isn't it? Sharp angles, plain walls, bars. It doesn't make you feel safe. It's stripped back. Just remember, like, panic when I first went to jail. Uh, oh my God, am I going to be safe here? How am I going to have to behave? You know, I'm going to have to be tough. I'm going to have to be really, really tough. And I'm going to have to, you know, keep my wits about me because mm. um, it's definitely a them enough atmosphere as well. You know, the officer, they're wearing uniform. They're the agents of the system that has sent them to jail. So, you know, there's a whole element of this trust that starts immediately, you know, who do you trust here? People who haven't been to prison think the system that we live in generally is quite benevolent. I never felt scared before I really went to prison. But once you've been in that system, it changes your perspective about the system in which we live. It feels like a malevolent system now. But if you transgress, this is what happens to you. And it's quite starkly terrifying. They put you through that and then they release you and you've forever got a criminal record and you're forever othered in the community because you're never accepted back. You have to declare it for the rest of your life. My mm. conviction is never spent, so a job site won't be able to go for by virtue of that. There's no sense of forgiveness and mercy and compassion ever again. So it does really change and frame how you view society as a whole subsequent to the experience. So prison, brutal, <laughs> the architecture, yeah, I don't think it's, it's not, it's not warm and fluffy. The mattresses are paper thin, you you have one pillow that is like a block of foam, really uncomfortable, toothpaste all over the walls, but not clean places. You know, if you're there for a while, yeah, you'll get your own cell and you'll clean it up. You'll be sharing cells with people that you've never met. The cell is the size of a bathroom, so if you imagine your bathroom. And imagine two bunk beds in there and a toilet and a table and a telly. And then you've got to share that space with a total stranger. You know, those things are not easy. So what's really interesting chatting to you is I think that it's making me question what I would originally have thought a prisoner or someone to have been in prison to maybe sound like and I guess to be like. So chatting to you, you know, so you sound really intelligent and there's no reason why you wouldn't. (laughs) 
you know? <laughs> yeah, well, listen, prisoners, uh, they're a really complex and diverse bunch. Don't think that it's all the stereotypical thugs. Exactly. You know, it's some really intelligent insightful people who've made an error of judgment somewhere along the way. Right. And, and haven't we all made mistakes? Exactly. And, and haven't it's... we all broken the law at some time in even small ways? Who's been speeding? People, if they really were honest, they've transgressed the law. You know, but, but prisons in themselves, the prison population is a very diverse population, you know, with people with mental health issues, people with drug addiction issues people who've had really adverse childhood experiences, people who've never been to school and therefore have like real hopeless visions for what their lives can be, people who come from very poor communities. From doing research, people of colour are disproportionately represented in prison. Is that something absolutely. that you noticed from yeah. your own experience? Well, absolutely. I mean, not just in my own personal experience of being a woman in jail, but the work that I've done subsequently since I've come out of jail is always about working with prisoners. And obviously people of colour are disproportionately affected by access to opportunity in the community. So it's inevitable that they are ending up in the prison system. There's more black people in prison percentage-wise in our community. So the Lamy Review by David Lamy quite recently into this race disproportionality in the criminal justice system really evidenced how that is, that there's a systemic racism that is at work in the criminal justice system which is, you know, it's a real problem. We need to be not ignoring that. I was about to ask why we should be concerned about, you know, women being in prison. But then I'm also interested to know not just about women, but also, you know, people of colour, trans people. Why should we be concerned about, you know, these individual identities in prison? If you care about life, yeah, we should be caring about fair and inclusive processes, shouldn't we? For me, it's wider than prison. The incidences that are really clear about the disproportionate number of black people in prison mm-hmm. or the number of poor people in prison or people with mental health issues in prison or people with drug addiction in prison, they're the consequences of something, aren't they? It's like, is it right that we send people with mental ill health to prison as a community? Why do we think that's okay? So the issues about prison are very much linked to social values. And the prison reform debate gets really fixed on, you know, supporting individuals, highlighting individuals who've made it out, you know, exceptional success stories. So we have this focus around fixing the individuals, but we forget that the individuals are there because they're linked to systemic failures around racism or gender inequality in the wider community. And then that also links back to the values that we have as a society in general about what's right and proper. Why is it that the wider political debate doesn't ever want to touch prisons and yet they're all interlinked? So there's never a cross-party, you know, the Tory, the Labour Party, neither of them has done anything about making prisons better. People feel obviously a moral disdain sometimes about the nature of the crimes that people commit. People just want to distance themselves from mm. it. It's messy and complicated and emotional and moral and it places us in difficult situations about what we feel about things. So it's easier for me to say, OK, I, I used to use drugs. People can go, oh, I get that. Yeah, she used to use drugs. She's gone off to a rehab programme and she's better. How do you deal with somebody who says, I went to prison for murder? It creates more conflicts about the nature of redemption and rehabilitation, doesn't it? And so we want to stay away from all that stuff. Therefore, we never get to deal with why those people have ended up there in the first place. Could you tell us about how women specifically are treated in the penal system? 
And if there are any issues for women in prison? Yeah, loads, because most women in prison are there for low-level non-violent crimes. You know, they're there for not paying their council tax, benefit fraud, prostitution, drug use, arson. They're mostly non-violent crimes that aren't risks for the community, and they could be better dealt with in smaller units, therapeutics. If you think about me as a drug user, wouldn't it have been better to have sentenced me to attendance at a drug rehab where I could have stayed close to my children? You've got mothers in prison. What's the damage to the kids of sending the mums to jail? You know, the intense struggle I've had to retrieve the damage that has been inflicted on my children. You know, I understand that it was me that broke the law. But when I went to prison, nobody cared about the kids. The state didn't step in and go, okay, we need to parent these children. We need to support them. We need to give them emotional support about how to deal with separation from their mother, the stigma that they felt, the shame they felt, the fear they felt. That was just left as damaged that nobody cared about. They're the children of a prisoner who mm. kept. So it's been, you know, an uphill struggle to try to repair that damage, to be, rebuild trust. Nobody gave me a guidebook about how to do that. There's no support. You know, mothers and children, the children of imprisoned parents. It's a big issue in our communities. Where does the community step in to help? Why don't people help? I don't understand it. And that's what I talk about, about the long-lasting impression of imprisonment for me is the shame that the community should feel for failing. If we talked about my life, honestly, it would be about drug addiction, it would be about domestic violence, it would be about abuse, it would be about all sorts of manner of challenges that I had. And prior to going to prison, there are loads of services that are satelliting me, trying to support me, trying to help me. And then I go to prison. Then... Those services drop away. Nobody ever goes, how did we fail, Paula? I'm no longer a victim that needs support. I'm a perpetrator, an offender, who must take individual responsibility for all of these problems. The community no longer has to take any responsibility for, I suppose, like failing to engage me, failing to get through to me, and never had to take any responsibility for my family and my children. And then wants to other me when I come out. When I came out of prison, I was very fortunate I got a job in an organisation and it got hate mail sent to its head office saying, are you aware that you've got this convicted drug dealer working in your organisation? I was in the sun, outed publicly when I was in the very last year of prison, out on what they call release on temporary licence, working in an organisation, in a community development organisation as an administrator. And there was an article in the sun about it, drug lag, let out to work in drug life panzer. I'll never forget the header on the sun, the picture mm-hmm. of me. So what gives people the entitlement to do that? I'm there in prison struggling complying with the punishment and actually challenging myself to get a job and to go out and not return to my old life. And is that we want to be voyeuristic about people doing that? What what gives the community the right to do that? It's about having a dialogue uh, with people to really check their own personal values and our community values about how do we respond to people who transgress? Do we look at the context in which that happened? Do we share some responsibility for why those things were happening to that person and the choices that they were making or do we shift it all onto individualism? Which leads us nicely on to how can we be better allies to people and women, especially in prison? (laughs) There you are. Well, I think, A, be mindful of the prejudices and the values that you have in the first place. What scheme are you operating from? How do you feel about certain things? And are you just adopting views 
without understanding where they originated. Who are they being led by? How are we being programmed to respond to different complexities? So for me, I'd never met any women who'd been to prison before I went to prison. And when I got there, I realised, oh my gosh, there's so many people here who have been failed over and over and over again by their parents, by their schools, by their guardians, by people who ought to have cared, by services in which they've engaged. It's not that they haven't been able to make progress. It's that the damage that they've experienced emotionally or the damage they've experienced physically, the mental abuse, the physical abuse, the rape, the sexual abuse, whatever underpins why people don't thrive. That's been a failure of the community to support as much as that individual's responsibility to acknowledge it and to do something about it. A high proportion of women who are in prison have been in care. Why aren't we ashamed of that as a community? We take vulnerable children, put them in the state system, and they still end up in prison. As allies, do we have a responsibility to challenge these services and these systems to be more inclusive? I think the sisterhood in general needs to acknowledge the vulnerability of women in prison and the systemic nature of their imprisonment, the gendered nature of their imprisonment, the specific gendered pains of imprisonment. Like think about mothers who are separated from their children, stop othering them and understand that we're all in this together and we can join together. People with convictions are stigmatised and discriminated against statutory discrimination around, Mm. you know, entry into the workforce, for instance. And we should be more vocal about that as a community and join together with the organisations that are working around issues of women's imprisonment. Get informed about the issues. And when people are talking about social injustice, remember people in prison are victims of social injustice as much as any other more palatable group. You've made me really question my own prejudices that I didn't realise that I had and, you know, made me realise things that I didn't think that I needed to face up to. Can you quickly, like, kind of summarise the work that you do with the Prison Reform Trust? My lived experience of the criminal justice system has totally shaped the way I've approached my life post-imprisonment. I do work around user involvement in prisons. It's around how do you get people who are invisible behind walls, vilified and demonised? How do you get the reality of their stories and experience heard in the wider community and for the wider community then to work with those people to take responsibility for the mess that we've all created together? It's really hard when you've got a conviction to speak out because you fear people's reactions. Some crimes are easier to talk about than others. It's easy to other them, isn't it, and to abandon them to lives of despair without hope of redemption. By getting people to tell the stories, to get people involved in becoming more visible, I hope that I can engineer conversations which are wider political conversations, moral conversations, spiritual conversations, economic conversations about what are we doing? Like, is this the way forward to lock people away? Do we actually believe it changes them? So that was episode 21 on incarceration. We can't thank our guests enough for taking the time to chat to us about such a complicated topic. If you want to find out more or ways you can help, we thoroughly recommend you check out their campaigns and lend your time, money and platforms where you can. Let's make sure that we don't forget campaigns like Say Her Name and stories like Sarah's. Racism and police brutality is not a problem just affecting men in the US. 
As ever, thanks to our three amazing assistant producers, that's Becky Malone, Amelia Parker and Emma Hallahan, who without their help, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. They seriously kick butt. <laughs> Reach out to us on our social channels at Kick Kariaki on Twitter. Kicking the Kariaki on Facebook. And Kicking the Kariaki at gmail.com. In love and in solidarity, Sydney and Elena. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.